How can the hospitality industry transform and tackle its environmental problems? Why are climate change scientists not taken seriously? And have we passed the tipping point of no return? Big questions that we're deep diving into today with Malcolm Wood and Matt Reed, serial entrepreneurs, environmental filmmakers and producers, restaurateurs and longtime business partners. It's time to live wide awake. Hey, it's Steph Dixon and welcome to the Live Wide Awake podcast. This is a podcast about climate change and consciousness, sustainability and spirituality. Each week, a special concoction for your listening pleasure so that you can lead your most conscious life. We're going to be talking about fascinating yet sometimes complicated topics and breaking them down into digestible chunks so that we can live wide awake. If you haven't already, do hit that subscribe button. And if you love what you're hearing, consider supporting us on Patreon. If you enjoyed the very first episode of the Live Wide Awake podcast when we had Craig Leeson, then you are in for a treat today. Malcolm Wood and Matt Reed have been working with Craig for years and have been behind the scenes of the upcoming new release of the documentary, The Last Glaciers. Now, Malcolm and Matt have been longtime business partners and they've worked across hospitality, environmentalism, wellness, and content production. Their companies include Steelhead Group, Maximal Concepts, and Disruption Labs, while they're also heavily involved or championing for Plastic Oceans, Hong Kong Shark Foundation, Plastic Conscious, among many others. Malcolm is also a United Nation Environment Mountain Hero. Well, Malcolm and Matt, thank you guys both so much for joining us today. I'm really looking forward to diving into this conversation with you both. I wanted to start by something a little broad and ask if you remembered the first moment where you actually realized that the planet was suffering and you wanted to do something about it. I think as a restaurateur, you're, you have a, a bit more of an awareness of what's going on, and, and especially with, when it comes to products, sustainable farming, you know, where you're buying vegetables and meats and things like that. And it's kind of been an educational process for us. The larger our company got, the more we realized that we had to do something in terms of where we were getting our products from, trying to localize as much as possible. As you know, being based in Singapore or Hong Kong, these are incredibly difficult cities to be truly sustainable as a business. Just because you have so much import, export, it, it's essentially a city that needs to, to bring in all of the products. And so selection becomes even more important. I think, you know, when we first moved our our head office to Hong Kong so almost 10 years ago, we we were the first to really start talking about ethical sourcing and making sure you know you were buying your meat from the right place and, and vegetables from the right place. And then slowly through that process, we started to, to change to more vegetarian-driven menus and and things like that. So it's, it's just kind of been a, a process of evolution, I think, for us. Yeah, I was going to just add to that. I think there was a kind of seminal moment where we had a built sensibility or passion for the ocean, for mountains, for the planet. But when Craig Leeson came into our office and he opened his iPad, and he showed us a 10-minute clip that he'd made for UNESCO of what then became a plastic ocean. And he told us that when we ate seafood, we were eating plastic. It was, it was a moment when you thought, my God, it's that deep. You know, like it's at that extent. And I think that was a kind of a trigger moment 
where we, it was, the problem seems a lot bigger than we perhaps even appreciated. Yeah, absolutely. I think A Plastic Ocean was one of the first documentaries I actually watched. And Craig Gleason, we had him on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. He was actually our first episode of the podcast. And uh, yeah, he's just done such amazing work, but it really is very shocking when when you deep into it. And I guess you've actually, now that we're talking about plastic, guys have been sort of leading some of the anti-single-use plastic movement in the F&B space in Hong Kong, particularly with Plastic Conscious. So maybe you can share a little bit more about some of the success, but also the challenges you must have faced trying to really galvanize a movement around that. I'll, I'll let Matt talk about Plastic Conscious, but I mean, just just following on from his point, when when Craig asked me and Matt to get involved in a plastic ocean and we got given this information, I mean, there was just no way you cannot act, you know, even as a business, even if it's going to hurt your bottom line. And so when when we were given the privilege of seeing some of the footage and research for the first time, we went back to the drawing board and we said, look, there's just we there's no there's no way we've got to eliminate single use plastic as much as we can. I think we got it down to about 99% in the front of house. The back of house is where there's a serious problem in the industry, and that's to do with how the products are shipped from the wholesalers to to the restaurants. And we've done we've done work there, and we realize that unless you can innovate the packaging, there's no way it's going to change. And that was the reason why we came up with Plastic Conscious. We wanted to change the industry, the packaging, and and just to deep dive dive the problem. I think we, we, we realized as we were going around the world giving talks at various film festivals and in, in environments like this, uh, at first it was about awareness and very quickly people started to say, okay, we get it, but what do we do? And, and so it became about action. And the biggest challenge, I remember Anna MacArthur told me, the Anna MacArthur Foundation, which we're both huge fans of in their kind of circular systems and the way that they approach everything. And they said that 50% of single-use plastic is actually fairly easy to transition. And then the other 25%, they've got an idea how to do it. And the final 25%, no one has a clue how to fix it. And, and so, and the biggest barrier across the 100% at the moment is price. So it's, so with Plastic Conscious, we've been both researching and testing and, and, and exporting and shipping around the world different solutions that we found that we tested within our ecosystem. But we've also been trying to build innovative financing solutions to enable companies to make that transition. And we run it as a, as a, a B Corp in our articles. B Corps aren't really easy things set up in Hong Kong, but we run it as a B Corp so that we can funnel revenues that we generate back into change projects as well. Yeah, I think that's so amazing. And so how have you actually found the reception of trying to change an industry that really struggles with it and really overcoming, as you said, the biggest hurdle, which is price? We've approached it from the perspective that the larger companies, large companies want to make a change, but don't quite know how to do it. And so if we can help them and they're prepared to potentially stomach the cost, they can be the leader. And then what they need help with is once they can find the product and know that they're not making a mistake, right? They don't want to go out and say, hey, we've done this. And they're only to find out that one step removed is still not, you know, what they said that they were. So so there's a kind of auditing and compliance side to getting that company to make that move. And as an example, I mean, we've been working on trying to find a compostable cling wrap. If you can imagine how much cling wrap we use within hospitality, but also medicine, logistics, and so on. There's so many amazing applications of this, but we focus first on hospitality. And um, we have a very good relationship with the Mandarin Oriental. So we've been working together, testing and trying to put that and with the plan to put it across every single one of their hotels worldwide. And by doing that, and then 
they're proposing to bring in celebrity chefs that work with them as ambassadors to then amplify that and grow that from there. And so that's how we, we can do that with them and then make it something that becomes that everybody else wants to do, you know, and, and, that, and then that cost becomes a reality. Um, and so that's kind of how we've been approaching it, thinking about global networks, thinking about partners and, that, and, and finding the, the issues that they have. And the two main issues, as I mentioned, is auditing. But the other is you really don't know how to market or communicate these changes. And once they know how to do that, they can start thinking about it from the perspective of brand value, consumer and marketing. And that helps the finance department get their head around the increase in cost. Yeah, no, I love the big picture thinking and really looking at your global networks and bringing that celebrity power into it. I think especially somewhere like Hong Kong, you know, and Singapore, that really does work and moves the needle for these kind of conversations faster than I've seen anything before. And, you know, I think what's also really interesting is you guys are business partners and you have a a group of companies across hospitality, environmentalism, wellness, and content production. There are so many things that you guys are doing, which I think is really exciting. But maybe you can share a little bit more about how they really all interlink and how you guys keep on top of all these different companies and movements that you're doing. The way that we keep on top of it is through great partnership. I mean, Matt and myself have been partners in everything that we've done for the last 20 years. And we have very different skill sets. And believe it or not, we haven't ever shouted at each other once in like 20 years, which is which I think is remarkable. Um, and we double check each other, we give each other feedback, we come out of meetings, and we're, you know, we listen to each other. And it, I, I think that partnership is, is, is the reason we can manage so many different things. And if you do look at the portfolio, it looks like it's a whole bunch of different things, a film company and, and a restaurant group and wellness and CBD. I mean, essentially, it's it's all driven from the same passion, which is that we're really behind you know, nature, products, food and wellness. And we're trying to use all of these different facets to to drive awareness in some shape, way or form through these outlets. And and it it all stems from the same passion essentially you know whether it's the film company talking about environment the the environment to being a restaurateur where you're passionate about food and products and interested in 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 where those things come from i mean that's my answer i don't know what matt's answer is i think it's a pretty good answer i think we we've always been able to support each other and we, i think that you become an entrepreneur because you are really passionate about something. And if you're lucky enough to really focus on your passions and Mal and I have a very headstrong nature. And so what, what this has enabled us to do is when we when one of us finds something that we really, really want to do, the other is able to support, to enable that and let that passion unfold. And then we come regroup and see how we can help each other do it. Um, so, you know, filmmaking is a perfect example. Like Mal has over the has always had it been a slightly extreme nutter, but over the last, you know, five years has taken that up a notch and really got into films and into filmmaking and and immediately like we plan that. So we think, okay, so how can we build a company around that? Let's let's get the equipment, let's not lease it, let's create a production company, let's then work out how we can do this. And and then how is that how how's that going to fit into your time schedule and where are you running with that? And then what does that mean from my perspective? And, and like vice versa. I'm getting really obsessed with wellness products and I'm wanting to this mouse doing the same thing. So it, it's just kind of enabling each other and always coming back to a point where we're, we're absolute trust. I don't know anybody else that works harder than Mal, and I think he feels the same way about me. So we so we so we just know that 
it, at least we're going to try our very best at everything and that and we trust each other implicitly to do that yeah, I think there's a lot of mutual respect and trust from both of you there, which I think is really lovely to hear, but also, I guess, one of the backbones of success for everything that you're doing and then continue to do. So I want to hone back in now, um, as you were talking about the the filmmaking company in particular, because you know you obviously worked on a plastic ocean, as we've mentioned, but do you think that we have seen enough change or action since the film, which came out in 2017? And if not, you know, how do you think we can start to to make more change happen? I think A Plastic Ocean was one of the... We saw the biggest amount of change off the back of that film than any previous documentary that, I, that I've that i seen myself personally. I'm sure there's there's been others, but it, it really changed a lot of people's opinion on their daily routine, their shopping, what they did when they went to restaurants. It changed business owners. It changed... CEOs around Asia. It was picked up by schools all around the world. It's picked up by banks at sustainability conferences. I mean, this film just blew up and we weren't expecting it. And it's we and through that we saw the power of what film can do and the potential that it can do. And the aim of making that film was not we weren't thinking, you know, it's going to end up in all of these different banks and schools and things like that. We just we it was made through a group of people being passionate about the subject. Yeah, more can be more can be done, but you know, it it was this it was the start of the process and as Matt said, you have to get more and more people involved in order to bring down that capital cost and make it affordable for those that can't do it. And we're going through that process, you know, we can see it with the plastic conscious people. 2 years ago when we went out with the cling film, no one wanted it. It's 30 times more expensive than the normal cling film. They couldn't justify using it. Now more people are educated, more people have watched the film, more people watched other films. The cost is becoming less important. The environment is becoming more important in people's minds. And they're making that switch. And the more people that make that switch, the price of the product is going to come down. So then, I mean, you know, and, and off the back of that, I got really passionate about the success of the film. And I turned to Craig and I, I said, look, we've got an even bigger problem in front of us and that's climate change. And I've got three kids and I'm petrified for them. And, um, and we wanted to tackle that problem. And so four years ago, we set down that journey and it's been four years of filming. We finished the film and we've just spent the last two weeks showing it to network leaders, heads of IMAX and iTunes and things like that. And we've had some really good feedback, but we're, we're just at the beginning of the process of working out where it's going to be distributed. But yeah, I mean, the, the, the films can be super powerful and, and, and great tools for driving, driving home a message. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted to talk about it next. So maybe you can actually share a little bit more about what The Last Glaciers, which is this soon to be released film, very exciting, what it's actually about and what you hope to achieve with the release of this one. Um, so I know Craig, Craig's been on your podcast, so I hope I'm not repeating what he said, but, um, essentially when, what we wanted to do is we wanted, we we knew that education was the most powerful thing. And that if we could get young adults and children behind the idea of climate change, we could make a bigger impact. And, and that was, that's basically what happened with the plastic ocean is that it went into the schools. It became an educational piece. People, like every school in Hong Kong shows it to their kids when they get to a certain age, they have Q and A's, you know, and they they use it as a resource. We realized, especially with the Greta the Greta movement and student protests and things like that, that that we wanted to explain climate change in a way that people could simply understand it. 
The issue is we didn't understand it. And there was this debate four years ago, 50% of the US population thought it was a hoax. I mean, it was it was that crazy. And so we we wanted to use glaciers simply as an indication around the world that the whole planet is heating and that they're melting everywhere. And it was a unanimous scientific decision. And so we started down this, this journey and we, we filmed in Antarctica with NASA, you know, all these top scientific organizations. Craig became the ambassador for sustainability for BNP Paribas. I became the, the, the ambassador for climate change and mountains for the United Nations through this process. And it was just this huge learning curve. And halfway through the film, we realized that gla- the loss of glaciers was going to be one of humanity's biggest fallouts of climate change. Because the loss of glaciers, they're basically they're water reservoirs around the world, and they supply water to a third of the world's population. And as we lose them, we're going to see mass migration of people around the world moving to places where there will be water. We're going to see mass loss of agriculture. And it's, it's just going to be one of the you know, the biggest, fastest effects of climate change that we're going to see in our generation. As you can see, you know, halfway through the process, we're like, well, you know, we thought we're fil- done with this film. Actually, we're not. And it turned into a four-year project. And we're out, we're out the back of it, slightly scarred. But I think we've got a really powerful film. And it's, it's, done, in a, it's done in a unique way where we try to engage the audience on the adventure of us discovering that. And we also use paragliders to do our filming. And I was on, at, at the same time, very passionate about trying to fly in very extreme ways. And we realized that flying paragliders was a very carbon neutral way of filming because you weren't using helicopters and you could get up to 6,000 meters and fly down and film and document these things. And so I, I actually filmed with Craig in front of me, you know, doing the fil- filming while I was flying the paragliders. And, you know, we were pioneering, you know, how you did this in, in, in the deep mountains. So, yeah, that's, that's kind of been the journey. If I can just add a kind of slightly succinct thing on the end of that, which is we worked out with the plastic oceans that there is a formula that we had made, perhaps by mistake, perhaps not, which is people that know about a problem aren't the target audience. And if you tell people to go watch something about a problem, most of the people that are doing that, it tends to come kind of loaded. It's either a celebrity, which can be, or a a politician. And so there's a trust gap. And so... We, we took that and we said, we, we, we want people to watch this that don't think they're going to watch a film about climate change or about a problem. So there's an adventure story. And someone who works in adventure is possibly the most honest person on the world. Like when you meet someone who is an ice climber or a surfer or pro surfer, they're, they're so focused on their craft that they tend to be very naturally honest humans. And, and so you have this world where they're, they're also incredibly integrated with the nature with which they play on. And so being able to take this human story, which is an amazing story of taking someone to the roofs of the earth to explore this and, to, and on this journey of exploration is a great film. And that, and that means you can watch this journey. And then the net result at the end of it is a wake up moment of, wow, I really actually need to address this problem. And that was we were thinking the same thing with plastic oceans. We wanted you to be worried about whales. We wanted you to worry about the sea. And then we realized at some point you are the whale. And that's so we took that formula and applied it to climate change. 
Yeah, I, I love the sense of adventure and taking people on that journey of discovery that you obviously went through in the last four years. I think that's really exciting. And when I was chatting to Craig, he also said that, yeah, you were the man, Malcolm, that got him up and down the mountain and uh, that you were super into extreme sports. So I guess like there must have been some pretty scary moments there, I'm sure, while filming this or moments of just shock over the four years of what you were seeing in front of you, maybe you can share a little bit about any of those kind of moments. Yeah. So, I mean, w w when Matt uses the word nutter to describe what I do, actually, when people ask me, what is the obsession with extreme sports? It's kind of like the, it's kind of like the biggest risk management game where you've got to apply all of your knowledge, training into a situation, assess it and work out whether or not you a want to start to do that process. And if you do commit to doing the process, how do you survive the situation? And and it's it it's an it's an analysis game. And if you're not good at analysis and you and you don't know when to back down, you're practicing the sport dangerously. If you're making the right decisions, you can practice the sport in a very safe manner. And so it's very similar to being an entrepreneur. So that's that's kind of been the the obsession is that it requires a lot of skills and 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 analysis and problem solving, which seems to be something that uh, I, li I like to do across the board. Having said that, the most dangerous thing we did was to fly Craig Tandem. And that was the one moment in the film where I could not problem solve the situation. And I had already... So we, I mean, we, we, we were trying to film a glacier in Peru in the Cordillera Blanca range. Pete was Viana Rahu. And we had enough food to do the summit once, as you normally plan. And we went up and I did not feel like I could fly Craig off it. I was fairly new to being a tandem pilot. And there's a lot of unknowns, like no one had taken off at that altitude in our group. Hardly anyone has taken off in a tandem paraglider above you know, 6,000 meters full stop. And then we had to land at 4,500 meters, which again was something you know the best pilots in the group had not taken off from that altitude. And we had to land at that altitude. Anyway, I, I, I called it and I said, I don't want to fly off the peak. It's just too windy, too turbulent. And we ended up hiking back down to base camp and deciding that we were going to attempt to climb back up the second day and do it. And so the second day we went up and it was turbulent again and windy again. And I was just trying to work out whether or not this was a good thing to do. And kids going through my mind and all of these sort of things. We ended up doing it. And I just remembered whispering in Craig's ear, you run now and you run like your life depends on it. And if he had tripped up at any moment, he would have literally dragged us off the, the side of the mountain before the canopy could have um, could have opened. It was about a thousand meter drop. And anyway, that's like that was the that was one of the the pinch points of the film. And we were just elated when we landed. I mean, we're we I think we hugged each other for about five minutes. <laughs> it was. It was an insane moment. I literally got like goosebumps and sweaty palms just like listening to your story. That's nuts. But obviously very glad you both landed safe and sound and you probably got some epic shots. So I guess maybe in the end it was worth it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, definitely some filming pressure there. I mean, if I was by myself without a camera, I probably would have walked back down that second time. So yeah, I mean, again, you've got to you've got to analyze those risks, you know, when 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 you do the sports. But that was one of that was one of the the moments. I think one of the other bits was is that Craig did not have enough energy to walk back down. So it was the, it was a choice between fly or I'm not sure if he's getting down on his feet, right? Yeah, yeah. So 
we, I mean, we had many moments like that. I mean, I, we were training, Craig had a rock climb and there's this scene in, in there where he's like lying flat against the wall, seven pitches up, unable to move because there was like a cliff there and we're just laughing our heads off. I mean, but yeah, it was, it was good fun training Craig and playing around with his fear of heights. Oh yeah. I forgot about that. <laughs> Doing all this with a huge fear of heights. That's just hilarious. I'm sure you guys had a lot of amazing experiences uh, filming. And uh, I wonder, is there like a behind the scenes episode or something that we can see of all the chaos that happens? Or is that actually filtrated through through the film? No, I mean, we took out a lot of a, a lot of that. I mean, we're, we're, we're thinking that we should be doing small clippets of, 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 of teaching him. And I mean, there was a lot of funny moments and a, and, a, and, a, and a lot of slightly dangerous moments where we were pushing ourselves as a team. For example, putting pressure on ourselves to get the footage of the flight, you know, in conditions that were not great for flying with a lot of unknowns. And we did that around the world. But yeah, I mean, I mean, there was other than the extreme sports moments, there were some really big moments where we were being told things by very powerful people that the head of a 20-year ice mission by NASA, John Sontag, telling us that we're facing our extinction. The, the head of the United Nations, Bruno, I can't remember his last name, saying that if we don't fix this in the next 12 months, we're not going to be able to fix this. Just getting to interview these people, follow these scientists around the world, for me, that was a more scary thing than flying off the mountain, is hearing individuals like this say things like that to us and saying, they don't understand why they're not being taken seriously. They don't understand why the population hasn't got this message. They don't understand why the politicians are not listening. And, you know, to the point that they, you, you feel like they're going to break down, they're getting emotional. And scientists do not get emotional. You know, they're very factual people. And I think they're at the point where they're starting to get emotional because we're at that point now. I mean, wow, that's really intense. And um, I just wonder, you know, when you've seen and heard all of that, do you still have hope? Are you just like super worried? Because hearing that just makes me think like, we're not going to be able to turn this around and get quite worried, I guess, for the future and our inevitable implosion. Yeah. So it, it's, a, it, it's a really interesting question because the damage that we've done up to now in terms of glaciers and the drought that we're going to cause from it, it's very, very difficult, if not impossible to reverse, especially in terms of human life spans. So we can, we can slow it down. We can't reverse it. So the damage that we've done is done, but we need to act now to slow it down. And we haven't acted quick enough that we are going to see populations have to move, but there's still parts of the world that we can save. And there's still glaciers that if we stop doing certain things will not melt at the rate that they're melting. And that means that populations won't have to move so rapidly in such a short period of time. And that's really the key is if this happens over 40 years, 3 billion people having to move around the, the world is, is, is going to be incredibly difficult to, to cope with. But if we can slow that down to a two, 300 year process and, and, and then reverse some of that damage, then, then we can deal with it. And that's, we're kind of in that phase where it's, you know, it's, we're past the tipping point of being able to not deal with the effects, and now we have to deal with the effects and we still need to act whether or not it's too late for certain parts of the world. What about you, Matt? Yeah, I mean, it's, 
I think that action we shouldn't. I think that we shouldn't think that action can't solve the problem because when when it feels very very helpless, it almost makes inaction feel okay. You know, um, whenever I get to this point, which I'm kind of at right now, where it just feels um, very depressing and almost oppressive, I think of the next generation, right? And I think that innovation, speed of change. If you think about how quickly we've evolved, like look at look at sort of the the speed of computers in, in X amount of time, right? It's like so innovation can come very, very fast. And and so between innovation and the energy of youth and the power that governments need to change and the law needs to change, because the three things that need to happen are companies make better decisions and change. Consumers demand it, governments force it, right? And and I think that even if there is obviously an inevitable fallout. We can evolve if we change, and so and, and I believe that the next generation is much much more aware of that. But that doesn't give an excuse to our generation just to sit back and wait until that happens. <laughs> I mean, that's the key. Is is last ten years we talked about passing a tipping point. We've passed the tipping point. Now we have to deal with some of the consequences. Well, guys, if you didn't wake up before with scientific fact, now you have to wake up with consequence. Younger generation needs to deal with it. Younger generation realizes this is happening and taking to the streets because politicians aren't making the policy change. And we film this in the film. We follow the student protests around the world. Why are our children having to take to the streets to deal with our mess to force us to change so that they have a future? I mean, it's that's just really screwed up. That's another powerful moment that we have in the film as well. And I, I, I'm optimistic that the kids are going to force our generation to sort out policy, and it's happening now. You can see, you know, people are are, are getting behind this. You know, unfortunately, America took a, a four-year break from the situation, which really didn't help. You know, we we had record heat in 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 the European in in Europe this summer, and and really screwed up and messed up weather. And but you know I, I'm optimistic that there's enough people now that know about the problem and believe in it. Four years ago, much different story. Um, and I think what we're trying to do with the film is not to continue to scare people, but to arm people with the right information to make the right decisions to change. Very similar to to a plastic ocean. Yeah, I I hope that we're able to turn things around and that the kids will come up in time and, and rise in the ranks and and be able to help us to to turn this around. But I think you made a very valid point that four years ago we started Green as New Black five years ago, and it was the same thing. People just didn't care, didn't have the awareness, and now people are waking up faster. I think we just need to move them further into an action space and not just sitting in the inaction, just ignoring it, not thinking that they're their actions matter or reveling in the eco-anxiety of it because we do have this small window where we can turn things around and hopefully people are waking up to that faster and realizing that they have to play a part and that every little bit counts. So I'm yeah hopeful that or hoping that that does actually happen and we're seeing that messaging a little bit uh, more and more. So I guess you guys have done a lot of different things and you know a lot of different companies and really now throwing yourself very deeply into understanding these issues. So when you do find yourself in a moment of eco-anxiety or stress from work or something like that, you know, what is it that you rely on to get you through? 
Yeah, I mean, for me, it's 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 my kids. I mean, I can't give up. You know, if if you have children, you're having a bad day, and they come downstairs and they're playing around. You just you can't just give up and lie on the sofa. You've got to deal with your kids every day, and it's the same thing with their future. You can't give up at any point. And you said something which is which to me is the most important thing with this whole issue is you can't sit there and say, well it's too big and I can't do anything as an individual. Every little bit helps. If you localize the products that you're buying, if you eat more green food and less meat, you are making a change. And if more people do that and more people are armed with that information and they do it, we're, we're helping. We're slowing down the process so that the rest of the people can catch up. The politicians are going to catch up. Like Everyone will catch up eventually. And as we cause these huge problems, people are going to take it more seriously. And so, you know, at the very least, I hope our film helps to slow down the problem so that it's not as big a problem that we need to deal with in the next 10 years, but we're still going to have to deal with it. And that's the reality of where we are today. I was going to shamelessly answer that in a completely different way. I was going to shamelessly plug CBD because so we, we, we have a CBD brand called Reset Bioscience, which is a really pioneering CBD that's a lot stronger on a delivery system that makes it work a lot better. But I do think that CBD is a tonic for the moment because um, it really does help with anxiety. And when I'm feeling, actually, I get it in the middle of the night. When I wake up in the middle of the night, my brain's just churning through things. My solution is actually CBD, and that doesn't need to be our CBD. But I do think that there's something weird about how we're getting things from plants that are helping with um, with these challenges in our minds, and we've been so pharmaceuticalized and um, drugged and sort of just, you know, it's funny, I do think nature has a lot of answers, whether that be meditation or just getting a bit more in tune with one's present really does play a part to how to address eco-anxiety and other anxiety forms. Yeah, two very powerful answers. Thank you for sharing. And I love what you said just then, Matt, a tonic for the moment. I think I need to get myself some of that tonic. Yeah. <laughs> I have I've yet to try it, but I also have moments where I wake up, but mine are normally nightmares about the world ending or people trying to poison me or, you know, these kind of things. So I think that could be very helpful <laughs> to get through those sleepless nights sometimes. So obviously the podcast is called Live Wide Awake. So what are one thing that you think that our listeners can do to live wide awake? For, for me, as a restaurateur, the easiest thing to do is to change your daily routine of shopping and eating. I mean, that's, 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 that, that is just the basic fundamentals. And it doesn't mean if, if you really don't want to go vegetarian and you want to eat meat, you limit it and you do it one day of the week. And by doing that, you make a difference. If you're buying avocados out of season, you're buying them and they're coming over on a plane from a different country. Stop doing that. Localize, seasonalize. And do that immediately because that's the biggest effect that you can make today on the environment, hands down. And if everyone did that, we would have a much better chance of, of, of slowing this thing down. I, I think that's a, a great answer. And, and I kind of second that. Uh, an average meal in America travels 2,000 kilometers to just try and picture that. And so I think if you can have that awareness you know, think about the packaging, like does fruit and vegetables need to be individually wrapped in plastic, you know, and just, you know, it, it frustrates me when I see a, a pineapple wrapped, I mean, nature has already wrapped it for you. So I think just having that, just that bit of awareness and, and I would add if, if to a sort of 
in terms of living wide awake is live. Actually be present. I think that we have lost sight of that. And, um, and take a moment. Don't be obsessed with your phone. Like, you know, get, give yourself space because I think once you have space, you can face and be part of solutions. But if you don't have that space, then I think that you're already, um, you know, already making life very difficult for yourself. I really like that. I think you've got to disconnect from the online and connect with nature. And, and you have to teach your kids to do that. And, and problems with city like Singapore and Hong Kong is you never have that connection to nature. I watched something recently where Tarantino doesn't have a cell phone. And on set, he doesn't allow any actors to bring their cell phone while they're filming on the set. They have to leave it behind. And so, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt in in the latest movie that he did, they they couldn't they couldn't use their cell phone. And everyone had to just have full undivided attention on the project. And I think that's just a great way to do business, teach your children you know, and connect with what you're doing and the present. Absolutely. And I think we're so, it's so ingrained in us to not be that way that we actually have to relearn how to be present and focus and be in nature. So a wonderful point and note to end our great discussion today. Thank you, Matt and Malcolm for joining us. Thanks a lot for having us. Three things I am taking away from this conversation. Firstly, when it comes to climate change, scientists are starting to get emotional because they are worried about what's to come and are not being taken seriously. We need to back the science and spread it as much as we can. Secondly, we're probably past the tipping point and will now be facing more and more consequences. But this is no reason to sit back and wait for it to happen. Inaction is really not okay at this stage. And thirdly, we have to remember to be present and give ourselves some space so that we can actually give more to the fight. So let's remember to disconnect from online and reconnect with nature. I hope that today's conversation stirred something deep within you ready to awaken. If you enjoyed today's episode, do hit that subscribe button and consider supporting us. Until next time, live wide awake.